As we saw in the video, many people have different traditions surrounding Christmas. But one tradition that's true in almost every household is the giving of gifts. In some way, there are gifts. And now, different families that I've talked to over the years have different ways of doing that. Some limit the number of gifts. Maybe they represent gold and frankincense and myrrh. Some will give small. In other families, there's just piles and piles of gifts. And in some cases, it's just a single gift. Sometimes that depends on the year for a particular family. Some years can be harder than others, and so the gifts are smaller. And other years can be a, a year of abundance, and so there are many gifts. But this idea of gifts and Christmas are connected, and partly because we remember the gift of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. And so we've been reading through the Gospel of John, this opening section, this prologue, John 1 through 8, John chapter 1, 1 through 18, in these four weeks leading up to Christmas. Now, John is not what we typically think of as the Christmas story. As Bobby Joe was here with the kids, she was telling the story and helping reassemble that story that most of us are familiar with, of Mary and Joseph in a journey to Bethlehem. There being no room for them, of angels coming to these shepherds out in the fields and the shepherds going and seeing this, and later of magi or these wise men coming and visiting Jesus. And that's so much of what we think of as a, the Christmas story. And those are told in other parts of our Bible. We have these four stories of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospels, four stories of the good news of Jesus. And in Matthew and Luke, where we find these traditional stories, but John is very different. John doesn't start that way. John starts with these words of, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it doesn't sound at all like the Christmas story, but as we've been looking over these last few weeks, we've seen that it tells the story of Jesus, that it's all there. And so three weeks ago, we introduced this opening line, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and that through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. We reminded ourselves that this one we're introduced to later as Jesus is the one who is the creator, that he himself is God, that when we talk about this little baby Jesus, this little tiny babe, the one we sang of earlier, away in a manger, that we're talking about the God who created the universe, that this one that the shepherds came to see and that later the magi came to worship is the one who created the universe. The next week we talked about this man. When John says there was a man sent from God, his name was John. And then he came as a witness to testify concerning the light. And so we heard and we reminded ourselves that this man, John, this ordinary man in the middle of this great story was sent to tell about Jesus. And in the same way, we're sent. We're sent into the world to proclaim who this Jesus is. And then last week, we kind of looked especially at that verse 14 where it says, the word became flesh. And he made his dwelling or he tabernacle, he pitched his tent among us and we've seen his glory. That when we talk about Jesus, what we realize is Jesus came to reveal who God is. And so when we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. And so while we may not have angels and shepherds and a trip to Bethlehem and mangers, we have the story of Christmas. And now we come to the final week as we prepare for Christmas. And I want to focus on what comes later in one of the last verses, in verse 16, where it says, Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace. And so out of his fullness, out of the fullness of God, out of his abundance. And so it's kind of this language of there's God has 
this superabundance. I know growing up, I always used to wonder, where did Santa get all those things from? You, know, you heard the stories of these elves in these workshops, and I thought, that's still a whole lot of gifts. And then we read about God, and when it says, out of his abundance, it's saying that God has more and more, that God doesn't run out. That's sometimes a challenge at Christmas time. I remember growing up, maybe it was Beanie Babies or Cabbage Patch Kids, or now it's a PlayStation 5 or whatever it is, but sometimes there's that gift that you want to get for yourself, maybe for a child or a grandchild, but you can't find it in a store anywhere. You say, there aren't any more, and we've experienced in the midst of this pandemic supply chain issues. And we've all learned about these strange economic things that we didn't care to think about a couple years ago. About giant container ships and why we can't, why there isn't any toilet paper in the store. But when we read the story of the Bible, and we hear these words that out of His fullness, we realize that God has no supply chain issues. There's not a matter of going to God and God saying, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm out right now, but could you come back in a week? But instead he's saying, out of his fullness, we've received grace upon grace, or really we've received gift upon gift. We've been told about this Jesus who's full of grace, and this is the God who continues to give. And now it seems like verse 17 might be a contrast where it says, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there's a temptation we want to put a, a, a but in there. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth, as if there's a contrast between those things. But John isn't saying that. John is saying these are all gifts, that God revealed himself through Moses, that when God appeared to the people of Israel and showed them what he's like as this liberator and this redeemer and the giver of goodness, that that wasn't a contrast. But now we saw a glimpse of what God is like through Moses. But now we've seen the fullness of Jesus, the fullness of God in Jesus. We've seen all who he is, that we've received even more and about this gift that he has given. We've received gift upon gift. And so I'm going to invite us today to ponder, what is this gift that Jesus has given? What is this gift that God sends through his son, Jesus? And so in verses 9 and 10, it says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Here it's talking about Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And so it's talking about that when Jesus was walking around on earth, when he was preaching his message, when he was healing the sick and, and telling about God's kingdom, that he wasn't always welcomed. People didn't instantly recognize and say, oh, you're the Messiah. You're the one that God sent to save us. You're who we are. And it's much like today. But sometimes we don't recognize Jesus at work. We don't always recognize who God is and what God is doing. But then John goes on, he says, that may be the case, but he said, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. He contrasts and he set it up. He's saying, not everyone did. He said, but there is an opportunity to receive. And when we do receive, that's what happens. We, give, we have the right to become children of God. And it's this statement which we can maybe take for granted, this idea of being a child of God. 
It's become in somewhat in our language, in our common parlance, sort of a generic term. So it's like, oh, everyone's a child of God. And, and in one sense, that's true. In one sense, we're all created by God. We're all created in His image. But when John is saying here, he gave the right to become children of God, he's saying people who are a part of God's family. And there's this supernatural birth. And he's saying that you're not defined by anything else. So it says, born out of a husband's will or a husband. In other words, all these other factors that come into who we are. Our parents, our ethnicity, our race, our class, all these things. He says, when it comes in the kingdom of God, we're not defined by anything else other than our allegiance to God. By our allegiance to who He is. And He gives us this right to become His children. And when we become children of God, He's saying, you receive all of these things later on and Johnny talks about how we receive life through him. And that's what he's talking about. This gift of being children of God means we have all the rights, all the benefits that come with being a child of God. And that includes life and life in him. And so sometimes we wonder, well, why didn't they? I mean, I think about that sometimes if we read the story of the Bible and we say, here's this incredible gift that God has given to us. God has given us this free gift where we're forgiven of our sins where we're given new life, where we have life in this life, and we have life eternal. And it's almost as if you were to imagine whatever that gift is you've always wanted for Christmas. Or maybe it's that gift you're wanting now, and you're thinking, oh, but nobody could afford it. I couldn't possibly get that. And so you imagine that gift, and then somebody comes and says, here it is. And they say, no, I really don't want that. And so we look at the story, and we say, why would no one want what God offers. Why would no one want this gift that God has given? Here we're saying that Jesus enters into the world and gives this incredible gift, the gift of life, the gift of peace, the gift of joy. And we say, well, why didn't people want that? Or we ask maybe, why don't people want that? There's a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor, and he wrote a massive book, um, like 900 pages long, called The Secular Age. I haven't read the book. I read the abbreviated version. Um, there's a um, professor at uh, Calvin University named James K. A. Smith, and he kind of has been a big Taylor fan, and so he's kind of written shorter versions of it for those of us who don't have the time to read a 900-page philosophy work. So if you're interested, you can go get... Um, Charles Taylor's works, but James Smith might be an engine. But what Taylor talks about is this change that's happened in our society. And he's talked about, Taylor uses the phrase, we live in a secular age. And, and what Taylor means by that is that unbelief is the default option. He's saying that there was, existed a time in the world that we lived in where most people believed in the existence of God. Now, we may have believed in a different God. We may have had different ideas of what God was like. He says, but we've become and we've entered into this imminent frame, this secular age in which unbelief is the default option, where people tend not to believe, where in other words, where God and faith has no consequence. In other words, God is not necessary for meaning or significance. And so when we read these words of John that says people didn't receive him, that's part of what we're seeing, and sometimes it's in our own lives. And it can take place in many different ways. It can be a sense where we simply see the church, and this happens 
We might think, oh, the secular, secularism is out there. But what Charles Taylor is getting at is that secularism also happens in the church. And what he means by that is we tend to start to push God to the margins and, and God isn't even no, is no longer necessary for much of our lives. And so what can happen even in church is we begin to think that church is just an enhancement for our flourishing. Or to put it this way, a lot of us have a plan, an idea of what a good life would look like. We think, oh, this is what I want my life to be. We're coming up on the beginning of the new year, and I'm not always sure, but it seems like less and less people are doing it, but oftentimes at the beginning of the year, it's a time where people feel like a need for a fresh start. And so they make pledges, they make resolutions. I know one person who said they wait till like January 7th to write their resolutions because they know by then most everyone else has already left theirs off, so they're starting ahead of the game. But this idea that oftentimes when we make these resolutions, when we think about our life, what we do is we plan it out and we have this picture of what it is, and then we begin to believe that we're the one who's going to make it happen. In fact, the world around us, and by that, the culture, the, the songs we listen to on the radio, the books we read as we go through the library, the, the messages we hear on the news, and all these places essentially say we are in charge of our own destiny, that we're responsible. Think about a bookstore. If you visit bookstores anywhere, I know there's not a whole lot of them left anymore, but if you go to a Barnes and Nobles, or if you were to go to Amazon and look, What's one of the biggest sections in there? Self-help. This idea that you can do it yourself and if you go and if you just develop the right patterns. You want to lose weight? Here's 43 books that will tell you how you can lose weight and all the patterns that do it. You want to have better habits of exercising? Here's 27 books that can get you to do that. Here you can buy my plan for $397, which is on special this month for $197, a special bonus for you because you can do it. But it's all about what? Self-control and self-will. And if I can do these things, I can be smarter. I can be better looking. I can succeed more in my job. And we shape and we guide our own destiny. Believe We are the masters of our own destiny. And that seeps sometimes into the church because what happens is in Taylor's words, in the secular age, we come in and we see the church, we see Jesus as just an add-on. He's like the turbocharger. He's the boost for moving along in our flourishing. I've got my plan. I've got everything all set out. I've got a life, and I know what a good life looks like. And if I just add a little bit of Jesus in there, then I got it made. And what... The message of the Bible and what John is getting at is he's saying there is no life. That's a deception. That's a misunderstanding. That Jesus isn't the add-on to life, but Jesus himself is life. When it says, in him was life. John doesn't say, in him was the extra little bit you needed after you've done most of it yourself. But instead, in him was life. That the only place to find life is in Jesus himself. And this is where we see this hope in Christmas. That despite all this hostility, despite all the opposition, that God gives the right to become children of God. Because I read this story, and it says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which is His own, but His own did not receive Him. 
Imagine traveling to your best friend's house or to your family's house or somebody you know and you're expecting full well that you're going to show up and they're going to welcome you and sit you and you show up at the door and they're like, go away. And they slam the door on you. And that's the story that's told here is that Jesus came to his people, to the people of Israel and to all the world, the world that was made through him, all the people and the people rejected him. And in the same way in the world which we live in, the secular age rejects God and his existence and they don't even begin to question that, but they begin with this idea that there is no God. And so it's, it's completely out. So in a sense, they're rejecting God and we reject God in the same way, which can be really depressing, except when we read this and we read what John says, he says, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And so here's where the hope of Christmas begins to come in. We might begin to think, oh, well, nobody's receiving God. We, if, if Charles Taylor is right, if he wasn't wrong in these 900 pages that he wrote, that people don't even see a need for belief in God, what's the point? And that's the point is that Jesus came into the world and that he still gives us that option. He doesn't say, oh, you've turned away from me, so I'm, I'm going somewhere else. But the message of Christmas is that God is persistent. That this idea of gift upon gift, grace upon grace, that God doesn't simply look and say, oh, no, you don't want me. You've turned away from me. You're choosing your own way, so too bad. But instead, the story, the message of Christmas is that God instead enters into the world, that Jesus enters into the world. And as John says later in his gospel, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. And so maybe the question then is, what does it mean to receive him? What does it mean? How do we have this in where it says that the world did not receive him, the world did not recognize him? We say, what does it look like then to receive him? And that's what John has said. He said to believe in his name. And these are kind of churchy words, aren't they? Church language is like, oh, I, I believe in Jesus. And I said that Taylor talked about like belief in God is an option. But there's different kinds of belief, aren't there? There's the one kind of like, I, I can believe in something. I can believe that something is true. But then there's the belief that acts on that belief. There's the kind that says, I don't simply know it up in my head. I don't simply think of it as an idea. I don't simply think of it as a concept, but I believe it. So it would be one level of belief to simply say, yeah, I believe that 2,000 years ago there was a, a little boy born and placed in a manger as his parents fled from the Romans and that he ended up in Egypt and that maybe he lived and he taught some people. I believe that believe it as a history, and maybe even you could believe that, yeah, that, that he died on a cross, and then a few days later, the tomb was empty, and we're not sure how to explain it. And so you can believe that in the same way that you believe that events happened in history. You believe that America gained its independence from Great Britain, or that there was a war fought against the Nazis, or that whatever event in history that you choose to think about. And that's one kind of belief, but that's not what John is getting at here. 
When he's saying, we receive him, we believe in him, it's this idea of putting our trust fully in Jesus. To say, I believe that he is the creator, that he is God, and then I am giving my allegiance to him. I've come to like that word as a way to think about it. To say, give my allegiance to him, to, to put my belief in him, is to trust that he really knows the way. To say that he is the true light, that he is the source of life, that Jesus is not just an add-on, but if I want to have life, that that's the only place to have it. That I can't be content to simply say, oh, well, I'll use Jesus as a little bit of extra, a little bit of spice when, when things aren't going so well that I come to Jesus, but instead to say, I am going to go to Jesus for all of my life. To give my allegiance to him to say that he is the one who has given me life. And so when John is telling us the Christmas story, perhaps there's a reason he tells it this way. Because he wants to remind us not simply of the events of Christmas, but he wants us to remind us of the significance. That this one named Jesus who was sent is the source of life. There is no other source of life. And he's saying, if you want to have life truly, you can't depend on yourself. You can't see Jesus simply as an add-on. You can't see him simply as something else. But you need to give yourself fully to him. You need to say, I put my trust in you, Jesus. And later John will tell us that this Jesus goes on to die and that he is raised from the dead. And God raises him from the dead and seats him at his right hand. And that Jesus is the true source of life. So to become a child of God is to receive Him, to put your trust in Him. And so that's God's invitation to us this Christmas season. To not trust in other things, to not put those other things, to not turn Him away, but instead to receive Him. To believe in His name, to believe that this Jesus is the source of life. That He is the one who gives gift upon gift. Maybe you don't feel like you deserve the gift. Maybe you feel like, I, I'm not sure. And that's what Jesus, John is telling us, that it's gift upon gift, grace upon grace, out of his abundance. It's not as if God gets down the line of people and you see these people and it's like, oh, I got grace for you, grace for you, grace for you, and sorry, I ran out. But there's never a shortage but this abundance of grace, this abundance of gift that God gives, gift of a son, gift of life in him. So in this week, as you prepare for Christmas, and as you think about the gifts that are yet to be bought and the gifts that need to be wrapped and what gifts you're going to receive and whether or not you've got all those other things figured out, I'm going to invite you to spend some time and reflect on the ultimate gift that God has given to us. The gift of life, the gift of hope, the gift of peace, the gift of joy, the gift of life eternal in Jesus Christ. And may you receive that gift. May you put your belief in His name and in Him have life.
Amen.